love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now I appeal to Eudea and Sintashi, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Always be joyful in the word, in the Lord. I say it again. Rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Thanks to Diana for reading the scripture and to the music team. I, too, am a pastor here named Mike, and I promise that uh, Mike Stroh and I do not purposely coordinate our outfits on Sundays. I noticed he was wearing khaki pants and a, a blue blazer. We joke about it. It, it happens about uh, 80% of the time, which has nothing to do with today's sermon. But thank you for being here. Well, we continue in our sermon series this morning on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippian church, which we've entitled Citizens of Heaven. And last week, Pastor Mike Stroh reminded us that citizenship brings with it both privileges and responsibilities. And he connected this to the naturalization process, which when completed, gives or bestows on one all of the privileges of citizenship in the United States. And one way that we might contextualize this naturalization process as citizens of the kingdom of God is to think of it as our personal salvation. The Apostle John says it this way in the first chapter of his gospel. He says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, our trust in the person of Christ, what he said, what he did, who he is, what he says he is doing, and what he promises that he will do, has extended to us the privileges of being citizens of heaven. Our names, as Paul says in our scripture passage this morning, written in the book of life. But what of the responsibilities? Citizenship brings with it privileges and responsibilities. You see, becoming a 
fully engaged citizen involves not only the process of naturalization, but assimilation. Now, assimilation is a complex term, and I promise you I didn't do the deep Ph.D. dive into what assimilation means. But according to a dictionary, it refers to the process through which individuals and groups of differing heritages acquire the basic habits, attitudes, and manner of life of the embracing culture. This idea of assimilation is is our growth into our citizenship as citizens of the kingdom of God. You and I might identify with this process as discipleship in our context. Well, the great commission that we read in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19, was Jesus' fundamental command to the church to both naturalize and assimilate as citizens of heaven. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, naturalize them as citizens of heaven, and assimilate them by teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. You see, making disciples is the heart of what the church does. The church was formed to form as one person far more creative than I has said. But there's lots of challenges to our formation as disciples. One fundamental pitfall might be that we can read a passage like 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 5 and we can come to see the gospel only as Christ's death being a solution to our sin problem. In order to defeat the bigger problem or enemy, which is death. It's a, it's a view of grace that supposedly gets one ready to die, but perhaps leaves us unprepared to live now in the grace and in the power of the resurrection life. The gospel of Jesus and the gospel that Paul preached says our salvation is more than that which results when we place our trust in Christ. It's participating now in the life which Jesus is living now on this earth. And of course that involves the forgiveness of sins and an eternity with God in heaven and on the new earth. But it also involves much, much more. John, in his gospel, quoting Jesus, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, Jesus did not die simply so that you and I would not have to. Jesus died so that you and I would die with him. And we do this now, wherever we are, and we do it with God and in the strength of God, and we do it with one another. And so as those who have been naturalized as the citizens of heaven, how do we assimilate so that we live lives as responsible citizens of this kingdom, fully devoted disciples of Christ, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, as Paul is encouraging us to do, and bearing the fruit of our righteousness and salvation? 
Well, in our study of this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, we've, we've been looking at how we can see our own stories in the light of the story of Jesus Christ, both individually and communally. How can we be a living expression of the life of Jesus and the good news of the kingdom? And as we've walked through this letter, Paul has given us this marvelous example of Jesus Christ in this messianic poem we read in chapter 2 in verses 5 through 11. And he's given us this example of who he is and how he's behaving in his imprisonment and why he's imprisoned and how his imprisonment has furthered the gospel. And he's given us examples to follow, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And now in this section, Paul brings it right down to the Philippians themselves. And in so doing, he brings it to you and I as well. He says in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He's, he's asking the reader to look back. And to take action in light of what he's been saying, in light of the examples that he's been pointing to, to Christ, to himself, to other disciples. Back in chapter 1 in verses 27 to 28, he, he wrote to the church, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of living be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. You see, all of Paul's letters, not just this letter, remind us that we as Christians are a a colony of heaven. A heavenly outpost on this fallen earth. And that we eagerly expect the Lord Jesus Christ to come as Savior and that our hope is in him, not just for our salvation and our eternal life, but for a life of transformation of the whole of our being. And so Paul says we must therefore stand firm. But in what way are the Philippians, in what way are we to stand firm? Well, he tells us, he says in verses Two and three, basically, to be at one with God and one another. He says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. This, this phrase, to agree, represents a, a Greek phrase nearly identical to one that, that he had used earlier in chapter 2. It means to be like-minded. It's an important word to the Apostle Paul. It appears in this letter seven times, this, this same Greek word. And the richness of the meaning of the phrase embodies not only the idea of possessing a common mind, but also the idea of of having identical feelings and attitudes towards one another. A, A total harmony of life. And here Paul singles out two of his Philippian readers by name, Euodia and Syntyche, two women of, of prominence in the church, women who, who Paul honors in how he addresses them equally, calling them his, his fellow workers. But they've, 
they're having a significant dispute, and, and this dispute is threatening the unity and the witness of the entire assembly. And Paul wants the whole church to put into practice toward one another the qualities that he mentioned in the second chapter of his letter in the first four verses. This spirit-produced fellowship with one another, uh, a relationship that's characterized by tenderness and compassion, a, a mutual love, a unity of purpose, and putting the interests of the other ahead of their own interests. He adds to, to this admonition to these, these two women the qualification that their agreement should be in the Lord. It's a qualifier of, of human conduct that's important to Paul because we're largely incapable of, of this sort of behavior. All of the behaviors that Paul's exhorting us to in this letter, we're left to ourselves, we're incapable of it. We've got to bring it under the lordship of Jesus Christ if we hope to be these people. He says, be at one with God and one another. You see, unity among believers is one of those essential characteristics of the manner of life of citizens of heaven. And it's not just a concern to these two people that are having a dispute, the nature of which we really don't know of, and it doesn't even matter to speculate. Paul says it's not just their problem, it's all of our problem. He says in verse 3, I, speaking to the whole church, he says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers who na- whose names are in the book of life. Paul isn't singling out these women because they're petty or they're some how um, less Christian than the men or anyone else in the church. He calls them fellow workers. These are prominent people in the church. He places them alongside of other workers like Clement and others who are unnamed. But he makes this appeal to all of the church. He calls them true companions. This word only occurs one time in the New Testament It means loyal yoke fellow. It's probably not a phrase that you refer to a lot of your friends and and one another by, but it's this this image of, of two workers, two beasts of burden being yoked together. It's the idea of taking a hold alongside of someone in the work of the church, of the gospel, of this manner of life that Paul is calling all of us to. You see, together, the whole of the Philippian church is to help bring about this reconciliation. And we, in this fellowship, are to take hold alongside of one another as we contend for unity in the faith. It's part of moving together into the remarkable love of Jesus Christ. Well, in verses 4 through 7, Paul returns to this theme of walking in the manner of life worthy of the Gospels, and he gives four admonitions. Picking up in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He's saying maintain this attitude of joy in the Lord always. 
And then he says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Well, this Greek word that in many translations is, is translated gentleness or gentle spirit or graciousness carries the sense of a, a generous treatment of others that while demanding equity in a relationship does not insist on the letter of the law. It's, it's an other-centeredness. Being reasonable with one another is being gentle. It is being a person of a gentle spirit. It is being gracious, extending ourselves to another in relationship. But more than that, it is not insisting on our rights or what the other person owes us in this relationship. Even though that we might be justified in doing that. It's a quality that that keeps one from insisting on their full rights when rigidity would be harsh or to exact the justice that is due you from another might cause them injury. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. You see, intellectually our faith is a reasonable thing, but, but how reasonable are we about living it out? It's a challenging question for for you and me. And Paul says in verse 5, he says, the Lord is at hand. He says, it's a reminder. He's, He's constantly reminding them, in the Lord, the Lord is at hand. God is with you. Because our reasonableness is preeminently the character of Christ. And Paul's saying that you and I cannot put on this character. Without the presence of God. In verse 6 he says. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. A common memory verse. I'm sure many of you have memorized it. It's, it is one to memorize. But Paul is saying here. How, do, how does one gain and keep their equilibrium in a world that's heaving with anxiety creating situations. Paul says that the answer is prayer. Now I have a lot of family members who are really anxious people. It's probably something we've inherited generationally. But my observation of humans is that if we're not in the Lord, if we're not connecting to God in prayer to deal with our anxiety, then we handle it two other ways. We either just check out and bury our head in the sand, or we try to control everything. And both of those are not the postures that that Paul is calling his hearers to. He uses three synonyms strung together in a row for prayer. He says prayer, petitions, and requests. He's emphatically urging the Philippians to find release from their anxiety in prayer and more prayer. One pastor says it this way. He says, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. And then Paul says in verse 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Now, these words together, hearts and minds, refers to the the inner being of the Christian, our emotions, our affections, our thoughts, and even the choices that we make. If the Philippians follow Paul's advice, he says, then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, he says, will will guard their hearts and minds. It will stand like a garrison of soldiers defending them from whatever assails their peace. It's an inner sense of contentment, but the key is that it's supplied by God. As a result of being prayerful, God supplies this attitude of joy and peace, which, which surpasses all understanding. And then in the last two verses of our passage this morning, Paul moves into a different set of admonitions. In verse 8, Paul tells the Philippians how they should think. He says, focus your mind on these things. And in verse 9, he tells them how they should act. He says, keep putting it into practice. You see, the list of virtues that, that Paul asked the Philippians to think about in verse 8 is, is not a distinctively Christian list. It could have been embraced by anyone of the culture who wants to behave in a morally upright way. He tells the Philippians to look for the true, the noble, the right, the pure, the lovely, the admirable, the excellent, and the praiseworthy everywhere that's around them, and to ponder the things in which these qualities are exemplified. It's This admonition to look for virtue in the wider world is a reminder to us that although we live in a society that seems hostile and evil, it's still part of God's world. It's part of God's creation that he's redeeming. And it contains much good that that we as citizens of heaven can affirm and participate in redeeming. So he says to focus your mind on these things. And then he says in verse 9, keep putting it into practice. Put what into practice? He says the lessons that you learned from me. He says the traditions that I, Paul, passed on to you. And the things that you've heard about me from others. And the things that you saw in me. He says he's he's saying... Earlier in, in the book, in, in chapter 3, he said, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And we see elsewhere in his letters, Paul enjoins the churches to follow him as he follows Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Paul says to the Corinthian church. You see, that's how we stand firm. That's how we walk in a manner of life worthy of the gospel. We focus our mind on things that are noble and good. And we practice the things that Christ did. We practice the things that the apostles put on display for us. We practice the things that... The good examples we find in scripture did. 
And Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you. And it's an interesting advance in thought here from what he said in verses 4 to 7 there. He says, there he said that God's peace would be something we experience. and But now he says, the God of peace, the God of peace himself will be with you. God is with us. And so how are we to respond here this morning? Well, I think we can start by asking ourselves, what is the good news? What does that mean to us? What, how is our understanding of the gospel shaping our response to it? Is the gospel to us simply limited to a theory of atonement and the truth that Jesus died for our sins? And that if we trust in that death and in his resurrection, that we will be with him in eternity, that is all true. But if that's all you believe, then you've got your ticket to heaven. And there's no real underlying motivation for you to to live a life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And so it It's important for us to examine what is our view of the good news. In the book of Romans, Paul frames what our response should be, similarly to what we've already heard here in Romans 12, 1 to 2. He says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. The mercies of God is God's provision for you and me in the life and sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's God's mercies. And Paul says, in view of what God has done for you and me, then we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And what is a living sacrifice? It means we've given it up. If you sacrifice something, you've given it up. In the Old Testament, when they made a sacrifice of an animal, they killed that animal. They put it to death. It's a, it's a laying down of ourselves, which Paul says, this is your reasonable service in one translation. And then he goes on to say, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And so perhaps... Part of our application is to spend some time asking ourselves the question, in in what particular ways have you and I submitted our bodies as living sacrifices? You see, how we spend our time and what we do with our body explains to you and I, if we don't know this about ourselves already, what we really want. And there's a lot of self-delusion that we engage in as we judge what it is that we want. But, but we have to be practical about our citizenship and living out our responsibilities and walking in a manner of life worthy of the gospel. We have to take steps to do it, and we have to make a decision to do it. You see, one thing that's really interesting about Paul and other disciples is that when they 
received this good news of who Jesus was and the kingdom that he was offering, that they threw the whole of their lives into it. And that looks like different things for different people, to be sure. But it's an interesting question to ask ourselves. Have you and I thrown the whole of our lives into being disciples or are we satisfied with being, I know this sounds, this sounds harsh, but occasional consumers of religious goods and services. And I don't mean it in any other way than just something to think about. Because as Paul says, we've got to think about these things and practice these things. And it requires both the grace of God To bring us to the place to do it, but it also requires effort on our part. You see, we work from our salvation, not to our salvation. When Paul says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he's not saying work out so that you're saved. He's saying, no, you've been saved. Now continue to work that out. Grow in how you walk out your responsibilities That is a citizen of heaven. And we experience this spiritual transformation. We grow into the fullness of our salvation when we're partners in the gospel with Christ, with the apostles and all of the saints who've gone before us and who are standing with us in this fellowship. And we have to undertake these activities to participate in the life that Jesus has brought to us more abundantly. And there's so much more that could be said about what it means to be a disciple and how we do that, and three minutes doesn't allow me to go there. But God wants to transform our hearts and minds so that our character can bear the gifts that he wants to give us. God wants to transform our hearts such that he can give us whatever our hearts desire because we'll desire the right things. Writing in his introduction to Paul's letter to the Romans in his German Bible, Martin Luther, who gets a bad rap about faith and works, has this to say about how those two things work hand in hand. He says, faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. The Holy Spirit makes this happen through faith, and because of it, you and I freely, willingly, and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, suffer all kinds of things and love and praise to God who has shown you and I such grace. Well, brothers and sisters, Paul in this rich passage is calling us to stand firm in our faith in fully devoted partnership with God and others, rejoicing, praying, patiently enduring suffering, And in so doing, experiencing the peace of God and God's presence. A reasonableness of our faith. 
that is the result of, of being pervasively possessed by Christ by walking in constant companionship with him. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Well, Father, um, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. The mercy of God put on display in, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And through whom we've been justified. Through whom and in whom we are righteous in your sight. But God, your kingdom and, and citizenship in your kingdom calls us to so much more than simply trust. It calls us to a place of obedience, Lord. An obedience that that we can only walk out in your presence and in your power, but God, one that we have to make a conscious choice to step into. So Lord, help us to see who we are in light of your son. Help us to throw the fullness of all of our being into who you have called us to be and to the kingdom that you call us to proclaim and to the glory of your holy name. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.